0: You guys could be seen it. You guys have already figured it out. Hey, let's uh, let's go back to our Father in prayer. It's time to bring the needs and concerns of a heavy world before Him who hears us. Uh, Father God in heaven, we pray this morning. Um, Father, we lift up the, the Cook Islands to you. We we pray, Father, for uh, your grace there. We thank you that you. Have provided a Christian witness there for so many years, but we pray, Father, that that light would not die out but would burn brightly. We pray that gospel truth would win out over attempts to control the religious convictions of the people. We pray that gospel truth would win out over the false gospels of the the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. We pray, Father, for hope for those who stay and do not leave to go to more prosperous nations and prosperous countries that they would see your hand at work in their lives, even in those remote islands. Father, we also lift up the nation of Sudan to you and pray for peace. We pray, Father, that... uh, they would not only have peace from from warfare and struggle and strife, which we pray for out of compassion and graciousness, but we pray for an eternal peace, that you would rise up uh, servants who would boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus there, even in the midst of tremendous hostility, and that the peace of a Savior, a peace that extends to eternal life, would be the foundation of a peace that they could not have imagined a generation ago. Father, even as we pray for witness and we pray for your grace in the midst of calamity, we lift up those individuals and and communities that have been impacted by the firebombing in Geauga County. We pray, Father, that your people, your churches, there, here, across Northeast Ohio, across our country, would lift up a better witness. That the true God is both not a God that tolerates injustice and sin but will judge the wicked and are a God who teaches us to show compassion and love our neighbor. And We pray, Father, that in the conflict between two false gospels, you would give us the boldness and the courage to proclaim a true gospel that gives hope. We pray, Father, for those of us who are scared, those of us who are broken, those of us who feel weak in our witness, that we would have the encouragement to lift up our voices to our neighbors and share with them the hope that we have, that we would have the confidence in our workplaces, in our businesses to open up the door of our lives to those who desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that as we uh, come to your word this morning to hear and study that our hearts would be shaped by your word, by your truth, how you have spoken to us. And may you give me grace to preach faithfully. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Heres we turn to, or click, or swipe, or tap, 1 Samuel 29. However you get there. Uh, there are Bibles in the seats uh, underneath you if, if that's what you need, or pull out your phone, your tablet, or whatever you do. Uh, but we are coming quickly to the end of uh, 1 Samuel, and we will be finishing in just a couple weeks. We've got a couple big messages before we get there. So 1 Samuel chapter 29. Now, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Athek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commander of the Philistines Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his lord?" Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord did not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the Lord to the Philistines. And David said to Akish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Akish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us into the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning and returned to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Yesrael. We uh, we live in a world of uh, extreme views and hot takes, which probably isn't a good combination. And then you add in the fact that you can express those views to millions of people at a time, and you have a recipe for mass outrage breaking out at any moment. Well, I don't think that sort of outrage is great for our culture. Uh, generally, there is at least one good thing about it. Occasionally it hits on a deeply honest idea that some beliefs, some ideologies, some behaviors are irreconcilable with others. We could probably stand to deal with those irreconcilable differences with more respect and, and more peace, but it's at least good and right to acknowledge that some ideas don't work together. It's just sometimes un. Comfortable to say so. But that's not new. It's the way we give voice to it is. In the very early church, the the fundamental question may have been, is Jesus the long-awaited Messiah of Israel? Either he was or he wasn't. And how you answer that question radically changed the trajectory of your life. Soon the question centered on things like whether Christians would live the ethics of Greco-Roman culture. Later the question became, who is Lord? Caesar or Christ? And on down through the ages. The, The temptations we face are not new, they just have different names. For those trying to faithfully follow God, 1 Samuel 29 points us to a stark reminder and a powerful encouragement as we make our way in the world. But let's set the stage a little bit, because as we've reached the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we've, we've reached a parting of the ways. About half this book revolves around the, the complex interplay between Saul, son of Kish, the king of Israel, and his would-be replacement, David, son of Jesse. And in chapter 26 their paths diverged for a final time. And their stories will have to reach a conclusion separately from each other. But the hostility between David and Saul led David to flee to the territory of the Philistines, the most significant threat to the Israelites during this time period. When we last heard about David, he was hiding in the land of the Philistines. He had built an alliance with the king of one of the Philistines' city-states, Gath, a man named Achish. And that was an uneasy alliance. David had previously fought in Israel's army, and he had helped to secure a number of key victories over the Philistines. He was still attempting to remain loyal to Israel. But to survive in a country that was hostile to his people and to his religion, he chose to keep those loyalties private. Here's how that worked, if you weren't with us. Because the king of Israel, Saul, was hostile toward David. The Philistine king, Achish, assumed that David was the enemy of his enemy, and so therefore an ally, a friend. And that David had fled to his city to escape political persecution. Meanwhile, David and his army made a home in the Philistine territory and went on military raids of some of Israel's other enemies that were some distance from the Philistine king's home. David would bring back some of the spoils of those victories to Akish as a tribute. But he wouldn't tell Akish that the uh, spoils came from Israel's enemies like the Amalekites and the Geshurites. Instead, he lied. And he told Akish that he had been raiding Israelite settlements. So as far as Akish was concerned, David had turned heel. In fact, if, if David had conducted all of these military raids on his own people, there was probably no turning back for him. So Akish concluded that he had a loyal and very valuable ally. And at the end of that episode, there was sort of a cliffhanger when the Philistines began to get ready for war against Israel, and Achish told David that he was expected to join the army with his men in that war effort. Would David go? Would he really go to war on his own people? His questionable decision to to live amongst a foreign people that did not share his faith had put him in a very compromising position. But we don't get the answer right away. Because the author of 1 Samuel refocuses our attention on Saul and his actions in the face of this oncoming Philistine threat. And now the metaphorical camera is back on David. The Philistines are mustering their troops where they've encamped encamped at Aphek, a town probably on the edge of Philistine territory from which they would march north and west, or east, excuse me, to meet the Israelite troops in battle. And so that's the setup for this conflict. A conflict that begins when the military leaders of the Philistines notice David and his men. And they ask, what are these Hebrews doing here? Now, the Philistines are a bit of a mysterious people, but we're pretty sure they were originally invaders from the West, from across the Mediterranean Sea. And so their language and their dress and even maybe some of their physical characteristics would probably have differed enough from the Israelites that these Hebrews, as they called them, stuck out immediately. The existence of Israelites among their troops as they head out to war against the Israelites would probably give them concern. We get that. We don't have to go very far back in our history to find examples of people being uneasy around those they think might be a little too closely allied with a foreign adversary. But King Akish is quick to defend their presence. It's David, he says, the former servant of King Saul who's been living under Achish's power and protection for some time now. He's a refugee. He's proved himself loyal. I trust him, Achish insists. But the mention of the name of David turns these soldiers' unease into outright concern. This is the David, David who killed the mighty champion Goliath. His victories were so great, they sang songs about him. Maybe he's an enemy of King Saul. But what better way would there be for David to make amends with Saul than to go into battle with the Philistines and then start attacking them from in between and behind their ranks? That's pretty sound logic. It's one thing to treat a foreigner well. It's another to place your life into the hands of someone who has not so long ago been your most feared enemy. And it wasn't even that many years ago that the Philistines had experienced a similar disaster. Back in chapter 14, when Saul's son Jonathan attacked the Philistines, there were Israelites who had fallen in with the Philistines, and they turned on the Philistines, and create a new front in that battle. They didn't want to repeat. So the Philistine leaders demand that David return to Ziklag, the town that Akish had given him, and leave the battle. Turns out the, the Philistine commanders, military leaders, lords, as Akish calls them, were wiser than Akish. It's impossible to know what exactly would have happened if David had gone to battle, but they had a right to be concerned. They didn't know that David had been playing a trick on Akish, but they were better judges of the risk David presented than Akish was. Unbeknownst to all of them, David had been promoting Israelite interests from behind enemy lines, as it were. But whatever their reasons and whatever their prejudices This much is clear. They were not going to let David, an Israelite, be part of them. David's stay among the Philistines is a lot like a Christian's life in this world. As we noted a bit a couple weeks ago. Although there may have been some questionable decisions that led to David's stay in the Philistines, David found himself as a foreigner, a stranger, an exile among the Philistines. And many years later, the apostle Peter would liken the situation of Christians living in this world to that of exiles. See, for, for Christians, our passport does not read citizen of earth, but citizen of the kingdom of God. And if your passport does not match the country you live in, your situation is always a bit tenuous. And there's a tendency to assimilate, isn't there? I know some in this church can speak directly to this issue. They came to the United States to, to work or, or for an education. And so they live between two worlds. And, and the more American you can talk, and the more American you can behave, the better you get along with others, the, the easier it is to get by. And some who come here do a truly excellent job of blending in. You'd never know they weren't Americans unless you checked their credentials, unless you checked their passport. And that's okay. If that's what you want, if you want to become an American, then all by all means adopt American slang, American dress, American customs. But for Christians, we were born in this world. And then we have been issued new passports that say, "Kingdom of Heaven." The expectation is that since we are in love, with our new country, and our new leader, Jesus, we will grow to adopt the customs and the language and the behavior of the heavenites, that we will be assimilated to Jesus' culture. And at some point, the actions that we've done in the name of Christ the language we've adopted in the name of Christ, the customs that we have adopted in the name of Christ will create a rift between us and the citizens of this world. Despite David living with the Philistines for 16 months, David and his army were easily identifiable. They didn't fit in. And David's past Deeds in the name of his God could not easily be forgotten by his Philistine neighbors. And although David made efforts to fit in, he couldn't. His loyalty to his God, Yahweh, made total assimilation and unity impossible. The Apostle Paul cautioned Christians living in the city of Corinth, who were adopting the world's ethics and the world's behaviors. And, and, and he wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. He said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement, What agreement has the temple of God? With idols, And Paul went on to, to cite both God's laws and the Old Testament prophets about the need for God's people to be unique among the people of the earth, to stand out, to be holy. That's the root idea of holiness, to be set apart for God's purposes. If you live in America or you live in any part of the world significantly influenced by Western culture, you probably find people are fairly sympathetic to many Christian ideas. Love your neighbor. Treat others as you would have them treat you. That sort of thing. But, but if you live a truly Christian life with uniquely Christian beliefs and uniquely Christian practices and uniquely Christian customs, you're eventually going to stand out as a little bit weird, even in those places to say nothing of places that were not as influenced by the Christian message. In fact, you might run into some hostility because there are certain things that Jesus preached and taught that are not well liked by this world. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a claim of exclusivity. That if you don't go through Jesus, you don't have access to God. There aren't multiple ways to heaven. There's the way through Jesus and then a myriad of wrong ways, wrong turns. Jesus said, sin no more. He had an ethical system that he expected his followers to live by. Jesus said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. There's a judgment coming on this world. And fundamentally, the judgment will come down to whether you receive Jesus. You welcome him and you worship him or you reject Jesus. You receive him or you reject him. These beliefs and this new way of living are very much at odds with this world. Because of that, if we are committed to Christ, we will inevitably stand out. We may be able to hide for a while, but we will never be able to hide forever. The world will reject us. It will never fully embrace us. And we might say that's mutual, because those who wish to follow Christ can never fully embrace the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if, that is, if you number yourself among that group, there are no secret disciples. Eventually, we all get found out. Eventually, we'll all be identified like David and his army were that day. And we will have to clarify our loyalties. Either we are a part of the kingdom of earth or we're a part of the kingdom of God. There is no dual citizenship program. Now, Christian, you don't need to go out of your way to be hostile to the world. You are not an enemy combatant. That's not the relationship. You're an exile. You're a temporary resident. Jesus is the one who fights our battles. We don't carry a sword. We do love our neighbors. We do show kindness and grace and gentleness to all. And that will also often give us a a level of acceptance. And, And that is good. It's good to live at peace. But if you are speaking the truth of the gospel and living lives marked by the ethics of the gospel, the customs of a heavenly kingdom, then don't be surprised if and when all the kindness and grace and gentleness you've shown is not enough for that neighbor or for that friend or for that coworker or that family member if you want to follow Christ you will eventually upset the fiefdoms of this world you cannot follow Christ and never upset those people who find their purpose in their political party or their identity in their pet cause or their sexuality or their patriotism or even their religious beliefs. And that means for those of you who are now followers of Christ or maybe in particular for those who might be attracted to Christ, who are considering following Christ, but are not now followers of Christ. You need to know that there's a cost associated with following Christ. Jesus taught those who were considering following him in in Luke 14. He he says this, uh, Luke writes, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. By renouncing all that you have, Jesus does not quite mean rejecting it all or kicking it all out of your life, but what he has in mind is a deliberate and absolute change in loyalty. I read a story recently of the, the conversion of a, a man who's now a, a pastor in Texas, Afshin Zifat who was raised a Muslim by Iranian immigrants. But after numerous encounters with the Christian message, he found a Bible and dug into it to to see who Jesus was for himself. And he eventually decides to follow Jesus, but he couldn't bring himself to tell his parents. He tried to hide his new Christian identity from them, but eventually his father noticed that his behavior had changed and then stumbled upon his Bible and questioned him. He couldn't be a secret disciple. His life gave him away. And he told his father the truth, that he was a Christian. And his father retorted, if you're going to be a Christian, you can no longer be my son. And Ziafar writes this. He says, Everything in my flesh wanted to say, forget it, I'll be a Muslim. I didn't want to lose the relationship with my dad. So even I was surprised when I opened my mouth and said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. And if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. My father disowned me on the spot. He loves his father he 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 wants to be good to his father as far as he could but there was a change of loyalties and his loyalty to Jesus was greater than his loyalty to his own dear father that is what Jesus meant that Jesus must be first above all other loyalties so count the cost, friend. But it is worth it. It is worth it. Even as David would go on to reign under God's kingship, so the followers of Jesus, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So that is the, the first key idea, a, a, a reminder, a caution uh, that ultimately those who follow Christ must ultimately be rejected by the world and we cannot follow Jesus secretly. But that leads in our passage to Akish uh, returning to David with the news. He, he butters him up before telling David what he assumes will be bad news. In fact, he even invokes the name of David's God, Yahweh. He says, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you. It's, It's ironic because David has been anything but honest with Akish, although he has done Akish a lot of good. But the Philistine king tells him, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the Lord to the Philistines. And that's probably more of an imperative. David, don't do anything that the Philistine leaders would find objectionable. But David already has. And he will again. He has to, he he must, because to worship Yahweh and and to reject the gods of the Philistines, Dagon, Baal, uh. Our uh ashara would be objectionable, and we've already seen how David has been at work to promote the interests of God's people, even in the midst of the Philistine culture. David protests. Well, it's impossible to know exactly what he was thinking. The whole of David's story points to the fact that he would bless his people, that he would do good for his people, not attack them. So it seems like this is part of the ruse, part of his gambit with Akish. If David was truly loyal to Akish, it would have been dishonoring for him to be told that he was unacceptable as a friend and an ally. And that's why Akish butted him up to soften the blow. So if David seems unconcerned or even happy about this news that he doesn't have to go to war, that actually might make him look a little bit suspicious. But I also think if we we listen to David's words, that I may not go out, why, why may I go out and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Who is David's lord and king? It's ambiguous. Akish probably thinks that he is speaking of himself. Oh, that's a nice thing for him to say. But as we read the book of 1 Samuel, what is the consistent refrain underneath everything? Is this question of who is king? And the answer isn't Saul. And the answer isn't David. The answer is Yahweh. The one true God is king and should be honored as such. David's words, I think, are deliberately cryptic. But Akish tells him the decision. It's firm. David cannot go into battle. He must leave with his men first thing in the morning. So David returns to Philistine country, and the Philistines head toward Israelite. Territory. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know this world can be hard. You very likely have already experienced some of that rejection that comes with being identified and being marked as strange. And there are then temptations to follow the pattern of this world. Even if we don't abandon our ultimate loyalty to Jesus, we face tugs on every side to pull us into rebellion against God. And from time to time we stumble. At times it seems like the weight of the world is overwhelming and we just need to give in. It's too hard to keep living this way. You probably know the, the Lord's prayer: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. We seem surrounded by it. But here's the beautiful thing about this prayer. Every one of those petitions, every one of those things that Jesus teaches us to ask God for is a promise from God. Hallowed be your name. May your name be set apart as holy and honored. It will be. May your kingdom come. It will. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will. Give us our daily bread. He will Forgive us our debts, our sins, as we also forgive those who sin against us. He will. But then, but don't lead us into temptation. All I see are temptations. But I think we misunderstand this request. It's not a request to keep the temptations from our heart. Now, even Jesus himself was tempted in every way, just like we are. But to be led into temptation is to walk headlong into the temptation instead of running from it. To give in to the temptation instead of resisting it. And God does promise this. The Apostle Paul put it this way, as even Grace read for us this morning, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the promise of God that no matter what temptation we might face, He will provide a way of escape. He will provide an out, He will provide a deliverance from giving into that evil there is a way out. And that is true even when we put ourselves in precarious situations like David did by going to live among the Philistines and trying to con them into believing he was on their side. Even that misstep was used by God for the good of his people. And when things got a little too thick, God was able to rescue David from a very dangerous situation. Either David would have felt pressured to attack his own people or he would have had to rebel against the philistines and put his life and the lives of his men at risk it was a dangerous game he was playing but god did provide a way of escape david didn't have to take it he could have thrown in his lot with the philistines There is nothing they could have done to stop him from attacking Israel on another front, away from the battle of Israel. And in doing that, he would have proved his loyalty to the Philistines and would have been accepted, undoubtedly, fully, wholeheartedly. But God provided an escape For David, from the temptation to do evil, and he took it. That is a great hope and a comfort for those of us who follow Jesus. Though he demands a new ethics that's often at odds with this world, and though we can face immense pressure to give in to the old ethics of this world. He doesn't leave us helpless. He doesn't leave us powerless. He provides us a way out of the temptation. And he empowers us by his spirit to take that sometimes difficult road. The author to the letter to the Hebrews, he was writing to Christians who were facing a temptation to cave and to throw in their lot with the world and stop following Jesus altogether, the most most serious of all crimes, the most serious of all sins. But he encourages us this way, speaking about Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that for Christians, Jesus is our high priest. Now, a priest is a mediator between God God. And humans, that's what a priest is. Jesus is that mediator. We have no need for any other priest. He made a way for us to be in a right relationship with the Father. Though we were sinners, he died to pay for sins so that we can be accepted by a holy God and escape judgment. But Jesus was tempted just like we are. And he didn't cave to sin. That's what makes him a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice. If he was a sinner, he'd have to die for his own sin, but instead he died for the sins of others. And that also means that he can sympathize with our weakness, as the author puts it, because he endured that weakness as well. Jesus felt the weakness of being tempted by sin. But he endured. So there's this great encouragement for Christians that when we are at our weakest, even when we stumble over sin, we do not have to hide from God. We don't have to run from God. Jesus himself, the king, sitting on a throne of grace, is ready to shower us with forgiveness and with comfort. Walking through this world is hard, but there's a king who is gentle and gracious to us, and I can't help but think of the hymn as it sings, Are you hopeless? Are you guilty? Caught in shame for all your sins? He pursues you. Jesus draws you. Rest in him. He has paid for every failure. Mercy flows in endless streams. Come and follow. Freedom calls you. Rest in him. The cost of following Jesus is high. But our hope is in a priceless treasure to be gained. The road to following Jesus is often hard, but our encouragement is that he has gone before us and he has made a way and he will not let us down. For those on the fence who are th- Considering Christ and wondering about Christ, it means he's worth it. And for those of us who have made a profession of faith, who number ourselves by that name Christian, we have this encouragement that we do not need to give up. Let's go with this hope and encouragement. Let's pray. Father, God, uh, we thank you that you have ransomed our lives from the grave by the blood of Jesus Christ for those of us who have come to him in faith and repentance. and, And we beg of your grace that we might see the way of escape that you have provided for us in our temptations today. And we beg on your grace for our missteps and our mistakes and our weaknesses and our failures knowing that Jesus has truly paid it all and will hold us fast to the end. Help us to hold our confidence until the end. And we pray for those who are considering counting that cost even now about what it means to follow Christ, that they would see that it is worth it, the promise of reigning with him until eternity is worth it, and that he will not let us down. We pray this in his strong name. Amen. Let's conclude by...